the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, in recent years, there's been a mini industry of best-selling books. There have been TED Talks and popular therapies that have emerged to free people from toxic shame. And yet, what if cutting off the ability to feel shame is not the solution? Well, in the book we're going to be talking about, For Shame, philosopher and author Greg Tin Elsoff, he carefully traces the positive role of shame and the role that it can play in contributing to a well-ordered society. He distinguishes shame from embarrassment and guilt and shows that while casting off unhealthy shame is always positive, a proper understanding of shame and how it functions in society can better cultivate virtues of decency, of self-respect and dignity. Perhaps shame is good, or better put, a certain kind of shame can yield unexpectedly good gifts. Well, my next guest is Greg Ten Elshoff. He is a Ph.D. with the University of Southern California, a professor of philosophy at Biola University, the founding director of Biola's Center for Christian Thought. He's published a number of academic articles and several well-regarded books, including the Christianity Today Book Award winner, Told Me So. He joins us today to talk about his latest for shame. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Elshoff. Well, thank you for having me. This is such an important book, and I can think of why I think it's important to your readers and to society in general, but let me ask you, what motivated you to take on this subject that is, as you point out, much maligned, the uh, uh, the notion of shame? Well, it started for me. I I, um, I took up an interest in classical Chinese wisdom traditions a number of years ago, especially uh, Confucianism. And uh, as most people uh, recognize, Confucianism is a shame honor um, uh, tradition. And as I got into that uh, tradition, I found that the classical Western canon is also full of um, uh, the talk of shame and honor. And so I, I guess once all of the anti-shame literature started coming out, it struck me as a little surprising that, uh, that uh, these, the great human wisdom traditions had got it wrong, both in the East and the West, as concerns the value of shame. So uh, I started to look, and I, I thought, what am I missing? What, what, are they, what are they seeing that the great human wisdom traditions have missed? And that took me into a study of, of shame. You are very careful to distinguish between healthy shame and the kind of shame that is unhealthy. Can you just touch on that just a bit? Because I think for some listeners, the notion that this is a book that uh, suggests that we rediscover the virtue of a shame uh, might misunderstand. Yeah, good. Thanks for that opportunity. It, it is a, um, it's a painful subject to talk about, yes. in part because it, it's so easy uh, to misunderstand one another. I think it can help um, to think about some of the other painful and negative emotions that we experience. Uh, Think about things like um, self-loneliness or self-guilt or self-betrayal. 
to talk of healthy felt betrayal or healthy felt loneliness uh, has a sort of strange ring to it. And yet I think upon reflection, we would all recognize that if you're, if you're without companionship, then the feeling that's apt for that condition is loneliness. And if you're without companionship, if you're alone and you don't feel lonely, uh, something's wrong, something's broken. And, and similar with betrayal. If, if, if you've been betrayed and you don't feel betrayed, then there's, there's something wrong, something's broken. Your, your emotions aren't in alignment with your situation. So I think the same kind of thing is true of shame. Nobody should want to feel shame, just like nobody should want to feel betrayal or feel loneliness. But if you have, in fact, been shamed, if you have, in fact, uh, lost social significance uh, in, in communities that matter to you, and you don't feel the sting of that, you don't feel the shame, then again, your, your, your emotions are out of alignment. You write that when we suffer shame, we feel somehow wrongly situated in the world. Guilt often accompanies this experience, but the experience of shame always involves the sense of diminished social standing. The experience of losing significance in the company of respected others, actual or merely imagined. We experience ourselves as a source of pain, discomfort, inconvenience or embarrassment for ourselves and for others. Talk a little bit about what shame is, whether it's the kind that we can benefit by understanding and responding rightly to, or the kind that is imposed on us and uh, is unhealthy. Yeah, thank you. It it is important to to notice that uh, shame is the kind of thing that we can bring on ourselves, or as you say, uh, it can be imposed on us uh, from the outside. Um, Shame... uh, like guilt, sometimes it's helpful to start with guilt because we're familiar with this, that, that guilt has both an objective side and a subjective felt side. To be objectively guilty is to have uh, violated a standard. Uh, and then on the subjective side is, is that emotional pain that you have when you recognize that you've violated a standard. You feel guilty. And we all recognize you can, you can be guilty without feeling guilty, and you can feel guilty without being guilty. Uh, so we're, we're familiar with that. Shame has that same kind of uh, uh, structure. Uh, shame is, the, the, on the objective side, shame is the loss of social credit, the loss of social standing. It's the opposite is honor. When you're honored, you, you increase in social standing. And then uh, on the subjective side, uh, uh, shame is that, that painful emotion that accompanies um, the loss of uh, standing in society. So now sometimes that loss of standing in society comes as a result of something you've done. If, if, you, if you've done something shameful, if, you, if you're guilty of some, uh, uh, some shameful offense, then you will lose standing in the society of, uh, uh, you know, folks who value uh, keeping the moral standard. And that should be a source of pain. Uh, to, if it's not a source of pain to you, then something, again, is, is broken. You're out of alignment. On the other hand, you can sometimes lose standing in society for reasons having nothing to do with anything you've done. It can be imposed on you. So if my father is caught in some kind of shameful offense, um, uh, he will suffer shame, and so will I. I'll, I'll, I'll be thought a person of lesser significance, uh, lesser uh, importance. I'll be I'll be wrongly situated in society. Or uh, other examples include folks who um, have visible 
uh, disabilities or um, uh, victims of abuse um, are often cited as folks who experience shame, but not because of anything that they've done. They're tragically seen as people of lesser consequence in society. So they, they are objects of shame, and their emotions are often tracking that reality. They feel the sting of it. They feel their downward social mobility um, when it occurs. And I, again, I appreciate that you are very clear that you make a distinction between healthy aspects of shame and um, the fact that not all uh, shame is healthy so that readers who might be reluctant to take on a book that, as you put, the central thesis of which is that the whole wholesale degradation of shame and the corresponding attempt to eradicate it is misguided and that there is a um, healthy moral and emotional experience that uh, that can uh, be derived from uh, a healthy version of shame. Yeah, so uh, as I'm thinking of it, uh, what we mean when we when we call shame healthy is that it's 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 regulated. It's it's um, apt for the circumstances on the ground. So uh, any of these emotions, uh, take the emotion of guilt, for example. You can have healthy or unhealthy guilt. Uh, you'll, you'll experience healthy guilt. If you are in fact guilty um, and you're feeling the pain of that, and and your guilt has the right degree of intensity. So if you're if you're uh, guilty of only a minor offense, you might think healthy guilt would be relatively mild. And if you're guilty of something atrocious, well then healthy guilt will be uh, you know more uh, more intensely felt. And the same goes for shame. Healthy shame is shame that's apt for the circumstances uh, that give it rise. And so if, you're, if you've lost uh, social significance, well, then shame, that, that's your feeling shame, is just your body's, your, in your um, soul's way of alerting you to that fact. But if you've only sort of lost, uh, if you've only suffered a mild diminishing of social status and you're feeling intensely um, uh, this experience of shame, well, then your shame is out of whack. It's, it's, it's not uh, tracking uh, uh, the way things are. On the other hand, if you've fallen into social freefall, if you've, if you've become a sort of pariah in society and your your felt shame is great, well, it looks like then your shame is uh, tracking the way things are. And experiencing rightly shame that is, again, rightly applied to your situation or your actions ultimately motivates us to either repent or to act differently or to acknowledge and take responsibility for what we've done. What's the what's the goal of healthy shame uh, in contributing to the good life? Yeah, good. When our shame comes to us um, because. Uh, of something we've done, then, then to be sure, it can motivate uh, a change of course. But again, shame and even even intensely felt shame can come to us uh, for reasons having to do with what other people have done or for reasons having to do with what's happened to us and that we didn't choose. And so even there, um, uh, the Alan Downs, a psychologist, uh, has this nice image that I've borrowed. He says that negative emotions are like warning lights. They, they alert us to the fact that something's wrong. So the, the powerfully painful feeling of loneliness is, is our self's way of warning us that we're, we're without companionship. And, and the powerful feeling of uh, betrayal 
is the self's way of uh, alerting itself to the fact that uh, it's without fidelity in its relationship. So similarly, self-shame, this, this painful emotion, is, is the body's way of, of uh, alerting us to the fact that we're losing social status. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue the conversation with Greg Tin Elsoff. He is a PhD. His his latest book is For Shame, Rediscovering the Virtues of a Maligned Emotion. The book is published by Zondervan. Again, we'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Greg Tin Elshoff. He is the author of For Shame, Rediscovering the Virtue of a Maligned Emotion. Now, one of the words that I think backs up the thesis of your book is the word shameless. It suggests that there is an appropriate level at which one should feel shame for one's actions. Um, can and you begin by examining shamelessness more closely? Uh, can you talk a bit about that? Because... Uh, the absence of appropriate shame produces something for the individual, but certainly for society in general. Yeah, so here again, it's helpful, I think, <clears throat> to compare shame to other emotions. So when we call someone fearless, what we mean is that uh, they don't tend to feel the emotion of fear when fear seems warranted or seems like uh, the emotion that's, that's apt. So when we call most people that I know don't think of it as a compliment to be called shameless. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't like their, their behaviors to be called shameless. And so if, if shamelessness is a kind of vice, what that suggests is that, that there, are, there are conditions where shame is, is precisely the, the right thing to feel, and the shameless person doesn't feel it. Um, one of my favorite examples of, of a trope of shamelessness is well, there are two. I mean, you think about the shameless tourist. Uh, the shameless tourist is somebody whose um, whose behaviors are all out of whack with uh, with the conventions in the place that they're traveling, and they're 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 losing social status as as people look at them. They're, they're losing significance. They're they're being thought uh, lesser of by the people around them because of how out of whack they are. But they don't feel it. And, and in fact, very often they just get louder. Uh, um, the more they feel themselves out of whack. Or you think about the shameless self-promoter. This is somebody who is constantly talking about themselves, constantly um, promoting themselves in public. And if you do that long enough, the people around you will start to, you'll start to lose social significance. People around you will start to uh, try to exit the conversation. They'll, they'll, they'll think lesser of you. But the shameless self-promoter doesn't feel any of that happen. They don't, they don't feel the, the pain of their social decline as they promote themselves. You write that the radical individualism of our contemporary Western mindset renders us uniquely incapable of integrating shame, unlike virtually all other cultures around the globe and throughout human history. Does our culture make it more challenging for us to acknowledge and recognize uh, shame in our own conduct and perhaps culturally as well? I think it does, and that's partly because in uh, in the in the wake of um, uh, the Enlightenment in the West, there's this ideal of of uh, self sufficiency and in rugged rugged independence or something like that. And 
to the degree that you, you hold us as an ideal that you would be absolutely independent, capable of the good life on your own, the idea that you would be fitted with uh, the tendency to feel pain when others think less of you isn't going to be a very good fit. You'll want to be rid of that if, uh, if what you're after is rugged independence. On the other hand, if, if you think that the good life is life with others, that the good life essentially involves a deep community with other people, then it's easier to see why we would want to have a kind of warning system, a, a painful emotion that alerts us to the fact that we're losing connection uh, with, with the communities around us. So I think a kind of radical individualism uh, makes it really hard to see why anybody would want to keep anything like the feeling of shame around. When is shame, or at least the perception of one's shame, appropriate? And how do you escape uh, the, the burden of um, one's own shame? Yeah, it's, well, I'm thinking it's um, sort of the perception or the, the feeling of shame is appropriate whenever, in fact, one is subject to shame. So when you've been shamed, that's the right time to, <laughs> to be feeling shame. Uh, just like when you're alone, that's the right time to be feeling loneliness. Now, it turns out that shame, unlike guilt, is the kind of thing that's very difficult to escape on your own. If, if I'm guilty of something, if, I, if I've wronged you in some way, there are things that I can do to escape my condition of being guilty. Uh, I'll never be innocent, of course. What's done is done. But what I can do is I can, I can ask forgiveness. I can make preparation. I can try to make things right. Uh, there, there are things that I can do to offset my guilty status. But shame isn't like that. When you, when you, um, when you fall out of step with society, when you, when you um, become an object of shame or when you're actively shamed, there's usually nothing you can do on your own. What, what you need if you've been shamed is you need somebody with status to identify with you. So when uh, uh, shame and honor are kind of like, um, you can think of them as like commodities. We all have a certain amount of shame and honor uh, that we carry around with us. And we, 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 um, uh, there are these transactions. And so if a person with high social standing associates themselves with a person with low social standing, some of their social credit goes over to the person with low social standing. We all learned this in junior high or high school or, or <laughs> wherever. So the person who's fallen deeply into shame, what they need in order to be rescued from shame is for someone in an honored position to identify, to condescend to their level, to identify with them and, 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 and transfer some of their social credit to them. There's so much in this book that we could talk about. Um, one of the chapters uh, is titled Shame Everywhere, and you make the point that um, this is a, a challenge for all of us. We've seen that shame is the negative emotion, resp- emotional response rather, to the experience of being discredited in the company that matters to you. This loss of social significance or social capital is often a consequence of finding yourself somewhere wrongly situated in social context or related to someone who is wrongly situated. Because we live in a, a world that is saturated with shame and shamelessness is uh, fairly common, where do we go with this this burden that we may carry? And I'm talking about the, the kind of shame that we rightly bear because of our conduct. Um, where do we go to um, 
lift ourselves out of it. You mentioned associating in the in the right circles, if you will, or with the right individuals. Jesus comes to mind. How do we deal with shame uh, so that we are not shameless and that we are shame free, if you will? Yeah. Well, uh, the the testing answer is that it's not entirely up to us. Uh, this is why uh, um, the the experience of shame so often correlated with the feeling of helplessness. Because again, unlike guilt, if you've fallen into shame, you're really uh, sort of at the mercy of uh, those who would rescue you from it. Uh, This for me is at once a depressing piece of news, but also the beauty of the gospel, that uh, that Jesus condescended to the level of uh, the human condition, uh, largely in order to lift the human condition out of its Shame. So, so there is hope insofar as uh, the God of the universe has condescended to us, has has, has offered, um, if you like, to tr- transfer his social credits to mm-hmm. us, um, insofar as we're willing to embrace that identification. But it's not like guilt in that. It's not like you could. There's a there are things you can just do all by yourself uh, if you've fallen into shame. Um, and, and the other thing to say about this is that for those of us. Uh, or for those in society who have a high social standing, there's a calling here. Part of what it means to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ is to find those folks who've fallen into shame and to honor them, uh, to, uh, to confer social status on them and lift them out of their shame. So there's a call here to be others-oriented, I think. I think about um, the story of Peter who denied Christ and of course, his shame is now known through all the generations of Christianity and yeah. into the future. Um, can you talk a little bit about him, his res- his response to a situation that resulted in him rightly feeling ashamed about the response that he uh, gave to knowing Christ, but then how that was lifted, if that's the right way to put it, by his association with Christ and what Jesus said to him following those events? Yeah, I think I think that's exactly the right way to describe it. I think um, Peter Peter fell into shame as a consequence of uh, his cowardice, or however you want to explain, um, however, you, however you want to describe the, the betrayal. And then, as is so frequently the case, retreated into the isolation of his uh, previous life as a fisherman and just sort of uh, went off into hiding, perhaps. And there wasn't much that he could do. But Jesus uh, uh, approaches Peter and condescends once again and identifies with him and, and calls him uh, to himself. Uh, it's exactly the picture that we get in the parable of Jesus in the prodigal son, where the, the, the son has fallen into shame. And there's, there's just nothing that the son can do to lift himself out of that shameful condition. But the father uh, runs to the son um, and puts a ring on his finger and throws a feast in his honor and goes out of his way to identify with him and to communicate to the larger community that um, he's with me. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, that is, that's, that's the recipe from shame. It's, it's uh, when, uh, in this case, Jesus, who has the highest kind of standing imaginable, identifies with us and lifts us out of our shameful 
for which I am grateful. My guest is uh, Dr. Greg Tin Elsoff. He is the author of For Shame, Rediscovering the Virtues of a Maligned Emotion. The book is published by Zondervan. I would certainly recommend it uh, that we rediscover this uh, virtue um, because it will serve us well to to know how to handle it rightly. And that's certainly what you um, instruct us to do in the book. Dr. Elshoff, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Appreciate it. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. I have to tell you, it's really good to be live and back in studio after having been gone all of last week on a wonderful trip to Mexico to visit friends. That aside, I was intrigued by a column that was written by Victor Davis Hansen, and I always... Um, uh, turn my attention when I've seen that he's written something or has said something because he is so insightful. Uh, And he wrote a piece uh, recently, um, the dangerous diminishing power of the independent American citizen. And I think it is a phrase that characterizes where we are today. He makes the point that citizens are becoming inert as radical ideas take root that our founders never envisioned. The last two years seem to have been one continual crisis, well aside from the coronavirus pandemic. Now, it's nice to couch it in the pandemic and the um, the fact that we were isolated from one another, that everything stems from that. But that's not the case. The spiraling prices of cars, gas, appliances, lumber, homes and food are revisiting the miseries of the 1970s. Anarchy defines the border. A new divisive tribalism centers on critical race theory. Unelected Washington grandees in the CIA, the FBI, IRS, NSA and the Pentagon, like John Brennan, James Comey, General Mark Milley and Robert Mueller, feign ignorance or mislead under oath or even break or ignore laws without consequences. Ancient customs and laws are under assault from the Electoral College to the century and a half makeup of the Supreme Court. The current administration looks to the United Nations, the World Health Organizations, and the Paris Climate Accord for answers to America's problems. What's going on? All of these daily melodramas are the natural dividends of the diminishing power of the independent American citizen, politically, economically, socially, and culturally. Citizens are becoming inert as radical ideas take root that our founders never envisioned. Again, what once distinguished Western democracies in general and the American Republic in particular was robust citizenship. A chauvinistic and broad middle class checked the privilege and leverage of the rich, yet it lacked the dependencies and often the envy of the poor. The middle class was economically autonomous. Its ensuing empowerment ruled the electorate. Americans once saw the physical space of the United States as both sacred and as their own laboratory of democracy. Immigrants arrived in diverse and legal fashion. As guests, all newcomers expected to be integrated and assimilated into the American civic identity. America was one of the few successful multiracial, multiethnic democracies in history, and Americans came to accept through civic education and constant self-criticism that the ancient and global plague of tribalism led only to national oblivion. So they took up the hard work of achieving the vision of Martin Luther King Jr., that our characters, not our race, is what matters. That's been jettisoned by both sides in the debate. There were other challenges to citizenship as the country grew powerful and rich. 
a huge government bureaucracy insidiously has appropriated power from elected uh, officials to improve, but as often to damage the lives of American citizens. Because these administers of the permanent state posed as our paternal benefactors, few citizens at first objected to the vast increases in taxes and non-elected functionaries. But soon citizens began worrying that the unelected of our bureaucracies had combined the role of the judicial, executive, and legislative branches. So often government grandees acted as judges, juries, and executioners when their regulations, their orders, their fines, and punishments bulldozed vulnerable citizens without the resources of the state. More formally, our professional, legal, academic, and political active uh, elitists have lost faith in the ancient customs and the Constitution itself. They loathe the fact that our traditions have privileged individual liberty over a government-coerced equality of result. Well, over the last two years, we've seen progressive efforts to end the 233-year-old Electoral College and constitutional guarantees to the states to set their own voting protocols during national elections. The 150-year-old nine-justice Supreme Court, the 180-year-old Senate filibuster, The 60-year-old notion of a 50-state union are all likewise now under assault. Apparently, the left feels these customs and laws impede our fated march to radical socialist democracy, or more likely the rule of what 51% of the people refer to on any given day. Globalization over the last half century has created two Americas. One is of limited government, red states, whose manufacturing, assembly, and and processing plants were shipped overseas or closed. In contrast, privileged bi-coastal elites of the blue states became fabulously rich on new multi-billion dollar markets for their legal, academic, financial, investment, and technological expertise. Soon, politics followed the money. And today, our governing and professional classes often feel more at home with global norms, various UN commissions, European Union social mores, and the dictates of the World Health Organization or of the International Criminal Court than they do with those of their own fellow Americans. Yet, if we were to restore the original idea of empowered citizens, then many of our current crises would disappear. How likely is that to happen in a constitutional republic such as ours. Well, it's not likely to happen, but the battle lines have been drawn. I read an article earlier today suggesting that given the divide uh, that is uh, not only exists in our country, but is fomented and supported by much of mainstream media for the first time and to a greater degree than our nation's history would suggest, we are now hearing talk of cessation, where secession rather, where parts of the country remove its, themselves from other parts of the country based on our ideology. This notion that people with differing ideologies, with differing worldviews, cultural distinctives and so on could somehow meld together for the common good is now lost on our society. And as I've mentioned, the battle lines are drawn. Now, I have to say that while these are concerns that are serious They're important. They have long-term implications. Um, I'm grateful that my citizenship ultimately rests not in the United States, in the federal government, in the courts, in the uh, judiciary or the legislature, uh, that my citizenship and my future, my hope and the prospects for the future beyond even my own lifespan rests on 
my citizenship in heaven, which was guaranteed to me, not by a constitution penned by men, but by sacrifice that was made by the son of God, Jesus Christ, and that he has prepared and is preparing a place for me in his presence beyond this life. I am distressed to see what's happening in this constitutional republic that was founded on the notion of religious freedom, of limited government, where individuals would have the freedom to set their own course, uh, to explore to the degree they were willing and able to pursue the best they had to offer, to develop their gifts and talents, uh, to support their own uh, views and so on. That is, over time, being lost. It didn't just occur during this administration nor for that matter, the last few administrations, we have been drifting in this direction for quite some time. And while it is distressing to me, and I see where we're headed and the cost to future generations, uh, I am grateful that there is uh, a way for us to recognize something even greater than this constitutional republic and this great experiment that for uh, many seasons has proven to be uh, far more successful than the founders could ever have imagined. I think about the founding documents that for me and my family and um, my ancestors, it was not designed for them. And yet the wisdom that was penned in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights exceeded the the wisdom and the imagination, even of the founders. I think there are elements of it that were divinely inspired. And it was because of what they had written that my forebears were able to demand uh, that they, too, be included in this promissory note, as Martin Luther King, Jr., Uh, referred to it. Uh, I stand proudly as a recipient, a beneficiary of their work and the work of so many others that gave me the opportunity uh, to pursue opportunities to exercise and develop my own gifts, to seize uh, seize an education that would lift my family uh, from one generation to another uh, because of the freedom experienced in this country. That, I fear, will not be the case for future generations, and I uh, I fear for my nieces and nephews, grandniece and nephew and others in future generations who will not have known the freedom that we have enjoyed. Now, I'm not suggesting that every advancement has been to the detriment of the republic. There have been some things that needed to be done that yet need to be done. Um, but we are jettisoning, jettisoning, I think, some of the more significant aspects that would guarantee that we could maintain the freedoms that we have enjoyed while at the same time uh, righting historic wrongs in the country. Again, it's distressing to me, but I tell you, I don't lose sleep at night. Um, I'm not wringing my hands because ultimately my future and my hope does not reside in my citizenship here, but my hope and my freedom ultimately is found in Christ. So while we uh, talk about what's going on in the country, we're concerned about it, we try to do what we can to right the ship, Um, I want to encourage you to continue to pray for this country and our leaders on our knees. I know we may or may not agree rather with those who are in positions of authority, but Scripture says we are to pray for them. I pray first and foremost for their salvation, those who do not know Christ, and ultimately that his wisdom would guide the decisions they make about this ship of state. Um, So, you know, we pray not because we agree or disagree, but because we are told in Scripture to do so. Uh, and so I hope that you begin there and that we lift our eyes above what's happening on this uh, on this plane, this terra firma, uh, and we remind ourselves 
of what's ultimately most important, that God still remains on the throne, that he is still Lord of all, and ultimately justice will be done in the courts of heaven. So putting it all into perspective is the challenge of the believer who is aware of what's going on in the world, the challenges we face, um, and rejoice in the Holy Spirit that indwells every believer uh, because of what Christ has done, has given all of us an assignment in the time that he has placed us here in the 21st century with all of its challenges and promises that one day he will return and right every wrong. So let's um, let's continue in that context to be aware, to be prayerful, and to be men and women of great faith and hope. I want to thank James Blend, who produced today's program, Chris Williams for Engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Back in studio after a week-long vacation in Mexico. Had a great time visiting a former pastor and his wife. They moved to Mexico after she suffered several strokes that left her disabled and... Um, They could afford the care there, and so we had the opportunity after five years to visit them there, and it was just a wonderful vacation of fellowship and having a great time in the uh, in the country of Mexico. Anyway, just just wonderful time, great people, and glad to be back. Well, today is Columbus Day, unless of course you're an Oregonian, and now it is officially Indigenous Peoples Day. I don't mind either one. I just um, wish we could maybe have both. I don't know. I part of the reason Columbus is maligned is because of his um, Christian intent. And if you are interested in reading more about what was in his heart, I think you'll be quite pleased to know what his intention was and that some of the stuff Howard Zinn, I think, is largely responsible for the fall of uh, Christopher Columbus. But nonetheless, it's worth studying if you're not familiar with his Christian background. We won't go into all of that today, but in the state of Oregon, it is officially Indigenous Peoples Day. There are a few states in the uh, Union that have jettisoned Columbus Day altogether. In other news, nurses are calling on nursing, uh, calling the nursing shortage in the United States and Oregon historic and catastrophic. Now, you add to that uh, the fact that um, 60 percent of uh, OHSU's nurses are considering leaving the profession. The percentage is reflected at the national and state levels as well. Now, you add to that the fact that we uh, are telling those in the medical profession, if you don't get vaccinated, you're out. Uh, really bad timing. Well, officials leading the Oregon Nurses Association held a virtual press conference last week. And they said the staffing issue has been many years in the making, starting before the pandemic. They want hospitals and state lawmakers to step in to fix the situation. Uh, Matt uh, Kalizia, who's a registered nurse and nurse practice consultant with the Oregon Nurses Association, said Oregon's health care system has been broken for a long time. Our pleas for changes to make the system patient centered have been ignored by hospital executives for decades. Well, he and his colleagues say that nurses are burned out. Longstanding staffing issues have been exacerbated by the pandemic. Eighty five percent of nurses at OHSU have indicated that they are unable to use vacation time or take a mental health day because there are not enough nurses to cover for those requests. Ninety two percent of nurses at OHSU report experiencing mental exhaustion. Perhaps the most concerning statistic, Calizia said, 
was that 60% of OHSU's nurses are considering leaving the profession. He said that percentage is reflected at the national and state levels as well. Losing even a single nurse from the bedside will result in greater strain on our health care system. The ONA board president, Linda Pond, said, and while Pond says that more than 90% of Oregon Nurses Association nurses are vaccinated, 90%, in recent weeks, large health care systems like Kaiser Permanente and Legacy Health have put thousands of staff across the country on leave because they don't want to get the COVID-19 vaccine, which again makes the problem even worse. Well, having been gone all of last week, it's been uh, quite a feat to try to catch up with what happened over the uh, the five work days that I was away. So I'm just going to wind my way, starting with Monday, some of the top stories that you may or may not have uh, followed during my absence, beginning with Dr. Fauci. He's being slammed for claiming it's uh, too soon to consider Christmas gatherings. In fact, he sort of frowned on the idea. It was under um, he was under fire on Sunday for suggesting Americans might have to spend Christmas alone in 2021. On CBS's Face the Nation, he spoke with an uh, anchor, Margaret Brennan, about the status of the coronavirus pandemic and what it's expected in the months to come. Specifically, Brennan wondered if families can gather for Christmas. Now, Dr. Fauci isn't going to tell families what they can and cannot do, but he weighed in. We can gather for Christmas or it's just uh, too soon to tell, uh, Brennan asked. Well, Fauci responded, it was too soon to tell if people could gather in groups by Christmas this year. It's too soon to tell, he went on to say, we have a... Um, concentration on continuing to get those numbers down and not try to jump ahead by weeks or months and say what we're going to do at a particular time, end quote. Well, the good doctor who serves as the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases has made several predictions of when things can go back to normal. Of course, that's changed month by month, year by year. In December of 2020, he previously uh, faced backlash for suggesting that Christmas cannot be business as usual, but predicted that holidays should be normal by 2021. Not prepared to say that will be the case at this time. Well, the doctor defended the California school vaccine mandate, saying it's not a novel requirement. Uh, Jason um, Aldean slammed Governor Gavin Newsom's vaccine mandate for kids to attend school. And former NBA player Lazar Hayward has been arrested for falsifying COVID documents. He didn't want it, but he wanted to live in the world. So he falsified documents. Critics are slamming Twitter's fact check of an obituary attributing a young mother's death to the COVID vaccine. Apparently, we shouldn't know that. And Merck's um, COVID-19 treatment pill could be available by the end of the year. Now, this is a treatment pill for those who actually have COVID-19. And it is uh, uh, touted as keeping people out of the hospital, um, lessening the intensity and um, preventing death. So we'll see what happens there. Meanwhile, Kabul is facing a backlash as the Taliban failed to pay the bills. They actually have to pay for certain things. Afghanistan's capital could be plunged into darkness as the winter sets in because the country's new Taliban rulers haven't paid central agent uh, Asian electricity suppliers or resumed collecting money from consumers. Well, unless addressed, the situation could cause a humanitarian disaster on top of the existing humanitarian disaster. That's a warning from Daud Norzai, who res- uh, resigned as chief executive of the country's uh, state power monopoly. Da Afghanistan Breshna Shirkat. 
nearly two weeks after the Taliban's takeover on the 15th of August. Well, the consequences would be countrywide, but especially in Kabul. There will be a blackout and it would bring Afghanistan back to the Dark Ages, which, of course, the Taliban's rule has already done when it comes to power and to telecommunications. Uh, Mr. Nurzai, who remains in close contact with the uh, remaining management, this would be a really dangerous situation, end quote. Well, electricity imports from Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and Turkmenistan account for half of Afghanistan's power consumption nationwide, with Iran providing additional supplies to the country's west. Uh, domestic production, mostly at uh, hydropower stations, has been affected by the year's drought. Afghanistan lacks a national power grid, and Kabul depends almost entirely on imported power from Central Asia. Well, currently, power is abundant in the Afghan capital, a rare if transient improvement since the Taliban takeover. In part, that's because the Taliban no longer attacks the transmission lines from Central Asia. They realize they actually need them. Let's hope they realize they need other things as well. Another reason is that with the industry at a standstill and military and government facilities largely idle, a much bigger share of the power supply ends up with residential customers eliminating the rolling blackouts that used to be commonplace. That, however, is likely to come to an abrupt end if the Central Asian suppliers, particularly Tajikistan, whose relationship with the Taliban is deteriorating, decide to cut off uh, for non-payment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the second hour of today's program, I had a conversation with Greg Tin Elshoff. He's a PhD and the author of For Shame, Rediscovering the Virtues of a Maligned Emotion. The book is published by Zondervan. One of the things I appreciate is he makes a distinction between appropriate shame and unhealthy shames. We'll talk with him uh, coming up in the uh, second hour of today's program. Again, Dr. Greg Tin Elshoff, For Shame is the title of the book. We're returning to some of the headlines from the last several days. The Afghan ambassador says he doesn't believe the president cares about the fate of the women left in the country, referring to Afghanistan. Two million dollars has been raised for the Marine who scorned his superiors over the Afghan withdrawal. He was a Marine, and I don't think you have the freedom to say certain things when you're in the military. Two million dollars raised to support him. Representative Gomer demands freedom for the jailed Marine, dubbing military leadership abysmal. Tulsi Gabbard says leaders in our country have lost sight of our mission in Afghanistan. Well, in other news, the U.S. Supreme Court is poised to make landmark rulings on abortion, on guns and religious freedom. Progressives say that they'll ultimately pass the infrastructure and reconciliation bill, saying we're going to get it done. Now, what they'll look like remains a question. Well, the Facebook whistleblower accused the company of tearing our societies apart. She also advocated censorship. So while it was... uh, Refreshing to hear her accuse the uh, company of undermining some of the more healthy aspects of society. She did have an ulterior motive. COVID-19 charges at um, hospitals nationwide can vary by tens of thousands of dollars, according to a Wall Street Journal analysis. And Bill de Blasio's COVID vaccine mandate is hurting New York City's underage partying scene. At least that's what they're saying. Well, vax to ride. Doctors say taxis should require shots for drivers and riders. So if you want to get from here to there, you may not be able to, according to some doctors. Clint Eastwood has won big in a CBD-related lawsuit. 
Well, the Department of Justice launched an effort to combat threats of violence against school officials, criminalizing parents. By the way, I've looked at the analysis of these uh, so-called um, uh, threats, and the vast majority of what is being referred to here are parents who uh, are opposed to the curriculum and some of what's being taught to their sons and daughters. Uh, certainly not criminal behavior. But that said, the Department of Justice is launching an effort to combat what it says is an increasing uh, increase in threats of violence against school officials and teachers across the country. Threats against public servants are not only illegal, they run counter to our nation's core values, the Attorney General Garland said, and uh, of the effort on Monday last. Those who dedicate their time and energy to ensuring that our children receive a proper education and a safe environment deserve to be able to do their job without fear for their safety. Well, we would all agree with that. But much of most of what he's referring to is clearly just opposition. Well, the attorney general directed the FBI and U.S. attorney's offices to hold meetings with federal, state and local enforcement leaders in the next 30 days, during which they will discuss ways to combat what the Department of Justice called a disturbing trend of harassment and threats against school officials. Well, critics say the move amounts to an attempt by the administration to bully parents from exercising their First Amendment rights. The department uh, will also be launching a task force aimed at addressing the issue while attempting to determine how the federal government could use its powers to prosecute crimes and to assist local law enforcement in incidents that are not federal crimes. Well, specialized training will also be made available for local school boards and administrators to assist them in recognizing behaviors that constitute a threat, as well as helping them report the incidents to appropriate law enforcement agencies while preserving evidence to assist in the prosecution of crimes. Now, crime is being broadly uh, defined now as a terrorist activity when parents are vigorous and energetic in their opposition to what's happening within their local schools. Merrick Garland said he is deeply saddened by two recent deaths of federal agents while on duty. And a California judge denied a restraining order request against a school mask mandate. Cinema, uh, um, the representative uh, fired back after far left activists record her in an ASU bathroom, calling the encounter unacceptable behavior. She's not being backed by her colleagues on the left. Former Education Secretary Bill Bennett launched a program to counter politicized content in schools. Well, Facebook and Instagram came back after the longest worldwide outage ever. Now, some think this <laughs> was a reprieve from some of what we've suffered under their, their leadership. Facebook announced this is last Monday in a statement that its platforms were back up and running after a massive global outage plunged its main site, Instagram and WhatsApp platforms into dark, uh, into the dark in the day. Well, the company said in a blog post that its engineering team found that configuration changes on the backbone routers that coordinate network traffic between their data centers caused the issue that interrupted the communication. On Sunday, um, it was revealed on CBS 60 Minutes as a woman who anonymously filed complaints with the federal law enforcement uh, that Facebook's own research shows how it magnifies hate and misinformation leads to increased polarization and that Instagram specifically can harm teenage girls mental health. That's the whistleblower Francis Haugen, uh, who testified on Tuesday of last week against the social media giant. GOP Senate candidate Sam Brown fired back at Twitter as the tech giant admitted his account was banned, well, by mistake. Uh, the Facebook whistleblower um, is the big tech's uh, biggest threat. 
we were being told before testimony last week. Well, empty buildings in China's um, provincial cities testify to the ever grand debacle, that real estate debacle that threatens um, the stability of the People's Republic of China. And a black former Tesla worker has been awarded more than one hundred and thirty million dollars in damages. New York Governor Hochul pulled the plug on former Governor Cuomo's $2.1 billion wrong-way air train. And mortgage payments are getting more unaffordable. You may know that if you're in the market. Kevin McCarthy accused the Democrats of seeking to silence parents. House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy took aim at the new Department of Justice policy intended to crack down on alleged threats of violence against school officials, saying it was part of an effort by um, Democrats to muzzle parents. President Biden's latest decision is part of a disturbing trend in the party to silence parents. McCarthy of California said on Twitter on Tuesday, it was back up by then, we should encourage family participation in our schools, not baselessly attack opposing views because leftist groups want control over curriculums. Well, at issue is the new Department of Justice effort to combat an alleged increase in violence and threats. Well, threats against public servants are not only illegal, they run counter to our nation's values. But in a statement on Tuesday, McCarthy accused Democrats of being guilty of their own disturbing trends, arguing that the new DOG, DOJ effort rather was an attempt to silence parents from having a say in their own children's education. Public servants actually serve the public. Senator Hawley excoriated President Biden for weaponizing the department against parents by using the FBI to silence them. And Senator Tom Cotton t- condemned the administration for sicking feds on concerned parents calling it dangerous overreach. Missouri's attorney general blasted the department's directive as an unconstitutional expansion of federal power as criticism is mounting. And critics say Biden's politicization of the department continues with a new effort to combat threats against school boards. Well, President Biden faced hostile Michigan protesters when he arrived to promote his stalling agenda. That was Monday of last week. The president traveled to Michigan, uh, excuse me, on Tuesday to promote his stalling Build Back Better agenda, but found an angry group of protesters waiting for him not far from the site where he delivered his speech. Those opposing the president in Howell numbered about 500. The Detroit Free Press reported with many participating in profane chants against the president. Howell is located about midway between Detroit and the state's capacity city of Lans- uh, capital city of Lansing. At one point, the protest cheered with, uh, when a green a front end loader with a no Biden sign traveled down the road, according to the newspaper. The money has come from somewhere. Protester Londa Gatt said you can't keep printing it, referring to uh, the growing debt and deficit. The president said his agenda was crafted as a reinvestment in America in order for the U.S. to remain competitive in the global economy in the years to come. Meanwhile, Speaker Pelosi was handed major defeat by rising progressive Democrat stars as the president's agenda was put on ice. That was early last week. More to come when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, a conversation with Greg Ten Elshoff. He's a Ph.D. and author of For Shame, Rediscovering the Virtues of a Maligned Emotion. The book is published by Zondervan. He'll join us in the second hour of today's program. Having been gone all last week out of the country, we're winding through some of the news stories, uh, top stories of the last several days. Well, if you've got $600 in your bank account, the IRS wants to peek inside Idaho's lieutenant governor issues a vaccine 
executive order while the governor was away. But Little, who is the governor, says he'll rescind that. A Nashville shooting leaves ATF agents seriously wounded and the suspect dead. Hillary Clinton announced a new book that sounds oddly familiar. You might want to check that out. President Biden says Democrats may take drastic action to raise the debt ceiling without the GOP. The NAACP wants to meet with Zuckerberg over hate and disinformation on his platform. A tech giant drops a bomb about a whistleblower after scathing testimony before the Senate last week. And the Democrat holdout signals a change of heart on the president's socialist spending agenda. Well, the debt ceiling deal apparently reached in Congress averted trouble for now. Congress may not have an infrastructure bill, but at least it has an off-ramp. Democrats and Republicans on Wednesday last week forged what appeared to be a compromise on the debt ceiling. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer teed up a vote to break a filibuster on a bill that would suspend the debt ceiling through December of 2022. There were warning signs of what might happen if the federal government crashes into the debt ceiling. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned that the government uh, wouldn't be have enough money to pay health care benefits to Americans because the U.S. couldn't borrow to make up the difference. Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell sidestepped a question this week uh, when asked if uh, he had heard from any major bankers or Wall Street titans about the GOP sitting out the debt ceiling fight. It was thought that the investment community would hammer Washington if lawmakers bumbled into a debt ceiling crisis. Worry started to permeate Washington that rating um, agencies would downgrade the credit worthiness of the U.S. before the 18th of this month, the deadline when the Treasury says the U.S. would run out of cash, which is sort of a figure of speech. So now everyone blinked on the debt ceiling. Democrats will apparently take McConnell's offer to suspend the ceiling for the time being. Senate Democrats indicate they'll accept that uh, debt ceiling offer. Republicans lamented McConnell's caving in. Well, the White House warned failing to raise the debt limit would threaten U.S. national security and military families. Kind of a convenient uh, thing to point to in that the U.S. national security is already being threatened. Meanwhile, Senator uh, Manchin stood firm on the filibuster, leaving Democrats' plans for the debt ceiling hike thwarted. Jen Psaki avoided ruling out McConnell's proposal for a short-term debt ceiling extension. And Hannity called on Mitch McConnell to stop being a swamp creature. You can interpret that yourself. Well, the Texas fetal heartbeat abortion bill. Um, that became law has been uh, blocked by a district court judge. There's more on that to come later in the week. A district court judge issued a temporary restraining order that was on Wednesday blocking the Texas Senate Bill 8 abortion law, finding in favor of the U.S. Department of Justice, which it sought to uh, order the um, uh, the uh, to block the law from taking effect. Uh, the Texas law signed by the uh, Republican governor, Greg Abbott, in May prohibits abortion once medical professionals can detect cardiac um, Activity, usually around six weeks and before many women know they're pregnant. Well, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals had rejected requests for a stay when abortion providers sought to prevent the law from going into effect until the resolution of a court dispute. Well, the plaintiffs appealed to the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court allowed the law to take effect. The Department of Justice under President Biden then filed a motion to block the law and Pittman, the judge, ruled on that motion. A Washington Post fact checker dinged Jayapal for claiming the majority of the U.S. supports federal funding of abortion. That's just not true. And the president reversed the Trump ban on federal funds for abortion referring clinics. Roe baby Shelley Lynn Thornton says she's not going to let either side use her in the abortion debate. And a progressive pro-life group says the abortion industrial complex puts profits over people. 
A squad Democrat was uh, caught on camera admitting that COVID mask wearing is just for show. A CNN anchor, uh, anchor rather, revealed his G-rated date with Monica Lewinsky decades ago. Why that was relevant, I couldn't tell you. I know there was a program on recently. Pregnant Georgia nurse uh, is dead after targeted uh, drive-by shooting, police say. And Dodgers' Chris Taylor, he hits a walk-off home run in a dramatic um, uh, NL wildcard victory. Last week, a whistleblower was uh, explosive or offered explosive testimony, just put Facebook on notice with three words. And supermarket giant slices in-store butcher services in favor of packages. Well, states, um, or rather stats reveal disturbing trend taking off on airplanes across America and why two countries stopped uh, using Moderna vaccines for younger age groups. Something to make note of. Well, record backlog of container ships is hitting the U.S., well, the Senate okayed a $480 billion debt ceiling hike after 11 Republicans joined Democrats in letting the vote proceed. Senators voted to approve a short-term increase to the federal debt ceiling on Thursday night, and that ended a week-long standoff on Capitol Hill and likely averting a default that could have triggered a recession. Well, Senate Democrats passed a $480 billion increase by a simple majority vote, 50 to 48. The vote on the final measure occurred after 11 GOP lawmakers joined the Democrats in a vote to invoke cloture, clearing the 60-vote filibuster threshold. The 11 Republicans who voted to allow the measure to proceed were Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Minority Whip John Thune, John Cornyn, Lisa Murkowski, Shelley Moore Capito, Richard Shelby, Rob Portman, Susan Collins, John Barrasco, and Mike Rounds and Roy Blunt. The bill will now proceed to the House, where lawmakers could consider it by early this week. The $480 billion increase is enough to fund the government through at least early December. Well, Democrats, Republicans voted to lift the debt ceiling, at least for now, in the Senate. And Donald Trump called for McConnell's ouster after giving the Democrats a debt lifeline, saying Mitch is not the guy to lead. DeRoy Murdoch says Mitch McConnell collapsed beneath Democrat debt limit lies. And Sean Hannity, he shamed uh, Mitch McConnell for completely caving to the Democrats' threats, asking, where is your backbone? Well, some other Republicans are unhappy with McConnell's debt ceiling deal, calling his actions complete capitulation. A Florida mom gets a standing ovation in Virginia after calling for mass exodus from public schools. Well, this uh, for Florida mom, Keisha King, she called for a mass exodus from public school system, arguing that school officials left parents with no other choice for fighting left wing ideas. Her comments came during the annual Family Research Council's Pray Vote Stand Summit during a Thursday panel on fighting indoctrination on a national scale. I really think it at this point, the only thing to do is uh, have a mass exodus from public schools. That's it, King said. In response, she uh, received prolonged applause and many. Many in the audience rose to their feet at the Leesburg, Virginia event. King previously drew national attention in June for her speech opposing critical race theory. She works with the group Moms for Liberty, which is um, one of many battling CRT and other ideas across the nation. Her comments came amid an uproar over the Justice Department's announcement that the FBI would investigate potential violence at school board meetings, violence being defined down to simply opposition and vigorous emotional opposition. The attorney general's memo on the issue raised concerns as it appeared to be in response to the national school board's letter suggesting that officials are encountering a form of domestic terrorism. 
This is parents, by the way. A Virginia mom and Indian immigrant is fighting the Department of Justice for putting a target on the backs of parents. These are good people, she says. The Virginia school board sued moms after documents were inadvertently and mistakenly released through the Freedom of Information Act request. Butcher and Gonzalez say the Biden Justice Department is clueless that censoring parents is sure to end badly. And a Philadelphia mom spoke out saying she won't be intimidated by the department's targeting of parents. Battle drowned uh, Democrats are slamming the president on his handling of the border and socialist spending. And Montana's abortion restriction laws have been blocked by a state judge. Finally, Costco is facing a major shortage of one holiday staple. Christmas trees. And observers are asking, is Amazon looking to leave Seattle? Some Democrats plan to limit uh, President Biden's plan to give the IRS more info on your bank accounts. And Google plans to block ads from appearing next to content denying climate change. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Having been gone all last week, we're winding through some of the news from the last several days. Coming up in the second hour of today's program, we'll talk with Dr. Greg Ten Elshoff. He's the author of For Shame, Rediscovering the Virtues of a Maligned Emotion. The book is published by Zondervan. He'll join us second hour. Well, Southwest Airlines canceled more than a thousand flights, saying it was, um, well, due to city's air traffic control issues. Well, the city's kind of begged to differ. Southwest canceled more than a thousand flights this weekend with the traffic control issues and weather, as they put it. ATC issues and disruptive weather have resulted in a high volume of cancellations throughout the weekend while we work to recover our operation. That was the statement on Twitter on Saturday. We appreciate your patience as we accommodate affected customers, and there were lots of them, and customer service wait times is longer than usual, end quote. Well, according to FlightAware, a website that tracks cancellations and delays, Southwest canceled 1,000 18 flights had uh, 597 flights delayed on Sunday alone. On Saturday, the airline canceled 808 flights and had 1,187 flights delayed. Southwest gave uh, Fox Business a longer statement on Sunday. They said... We experienced weather challenges in our Florida airports at the beginning of the weekend, challenges that were compounded by unexpected air traffic control issues in the same region, triggering delays and prompting significant cancellations for us beginning Friday evening, according to their spokesperson. A Federal Aviation Administration spokesperson explained that the air traffic control issues ended on Friday. The Southwest Airlines Pilots Association, which filed a motion for a temporary restraining order against the airline's COVID-19 vaccine mandate, issued a statement clarifying that it had no connection to the cancellations and delays. In other developments, Senator Cruz speculated on the massive flight cancellation, saying the airline blamed the weather and air traffic control issues rather than pilots revolting against vaccine requirements. Blue Origin's new Shepard NS-18 will launch with William Shatner. That was delayed because of weather, but he's going up. Meanwhile, Vice President Kamala Harris is being mocked over her part in the science videos for kids. The vice president's uh, getting roasted on social media after appearing in a NASA video for kids, while the Biden administration's approval ratings continue on a downward spiral. Harris, who serves as chair of the National Space Council, talked to kids about her fixation with the uh, craters on the moon during a NASA video on YouTube honoring World Space Week. In the video, the vice president hosted the kids and gave them 
uh, life advice at her official residence in Washington, D.C., where the U.S. Naval Observatory is located. You know, one of the most important pieces of advice that I can offer you guys, and I want you to really remember this, never let anybody tell you who you are. Um, you tell them who you are, she said in the video. Never let anyone suggest that you are um, what you think you should be. You tell them who you are and who you know you are and what you intend to be. Got that? Well, I struggle, but maybe the kids got it. I don't know. Harris, the vice president, also talked about her own passion for science and exploring the unknown, as well as what the kids could expect during her, their trip to the observatory. You're going to literally see the craters on the moon with your own eyes, she explained. With your own eyes, I'm telling you, it's going to be unbelievable, end quote. Well, her animation and wide-eyed enthusiasm over the subject matter became a point of ridicule among some. In other developments, the administration is using federal law enforcement to intimidate parents into silence. Liberal activists plan on bird-dogging Kirsten Cinema at the Boston Marathon, which was today. And the vice president skipped the U.S.-Mexico border security meeting that she's sort of overseeing. She went to New Jersey instead. China's lunar rock samples show lava flowed on the moon some years ago. Tulsi Gabbard accused the president's Homeland Security Secretary, Mayorkas, of boldly lying to Congress. The former congresswoman slammed the president's immigration policies on Saturday during justice with Judge Janine, which she said had serious humanitarian and national security consequences. The Biden-Harris administration has an open door policy at the borders. The Hawaii Democrat said the reality is that people are being let in and crossing the border every single uh, every single day. Uh, In other developments, the Mayorkas investigation into the so-called Border Patrol whipping incident drags on. Tom Homan argues that Mayorkas has no credibility after the DHS canceled border wall contracts and the DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, has canceled Texas border wall contracts amid mounting concern. Speaker Pelosi met with Pope Francis as bishops a little closer to home are praying for her conversion, as they put it. Left wing activists vow to take harassment of Democrats up a notch. And how does Fauci feel about letting your kids trick or treat this Halloween? No problem. Christmas, on the other hand, not so much. Well, Goldman uh, cuts its forecast for U.S. economic growth In 2021 and 2022, Facebook's execs defend their controversial algorithm describing the world um, without it. So we're better off with their algorithm. Soaring uh, energy prices are raising concerns about U.S. inflation and the economy. And a California law will eventually ban gas-powered lawn equipment. Beyond Evergrande, China's property market faces a $5 trillion reckoning. That's beyond Evergrande. Well, President Biden on bullying a female senator in the restroom. It happens to everyone, he said. He was asked if following a female senator into a restroom is crossing a line. His answer, a quick, I don't think they're appropriate tactics, followed by, but it happens to everybody and it's part of the process. Is it really part of the process to be followed into the bathroom? Well, the media is working overtime to portray Biden's comment as, well, no big deal. Senator Cinema has now been harassed by an illegal immigrant while on an airplane. Biden, it's part of the process, continues its natural path as the uh, left targets anyone who dares cross uh, them in any way, she being on their team. Uh, David Harsini points out our country is so free that illegal immigrants can yell at senators in public without worrying about any repercussions. The woman videoed herself harassing cinema, clearly seeking attention. This was in the bathroom, by the way. And a story claims George Soros is financing the group targeting the senator. 
Tim Carney points out all the rules they impose on conservatives, none of them believes uh, apply to themselves. And Rich Lowry calls cinema the new Brett Kavanaugh. Byron York says the media helped push the bullying of Manchin and uh, Senator Cinema as well. Attorney General Garland told the FBI to view parents as a threat if they oppose critical race theory, peacefully or otherwise. And New York's largest health care provider fired 1,400 workers over the vaccine mandate. Northwell Health then proudly declared themselves 100% vaccinated. Of course, they can't treat patients, but they're vaccinated. Dan McLaughlin says, I was told that everybody would comply. Clearly, the tone being set from the top of state government is the problem. Dr. Fauci gave a false statement about not gathering at Christmas. He backtracked, but with clear deception, claiming he was taken out of context, which he was not. He said on CNN, I was asked, when can we predict for this winter like December and Christmas? I said, we don't know because we've uh, seen slopes that went down. But the problem for Fauci is we have actual video um, of what he said in a friendly uh, confines of CNN. He didn't have to worry about them pulling out the video. Clarissa Ward says Afghan women have been pushed out of the public life. No surprise there. She's back reporting from Kabul, explaining how the Taliban are pushing women aside. Some, she said, are protesting the education ban, risking their lives to do so. Ward is one of the few reporters still covering the stories from the country. New York lost a major uh, a most senior judge over the vaccination demand. Associate Court of Appeals Judge Jenny Riviera is the only state jurist out of the total approximating thir- approximately 1,300 who declined the jab and failed to apply for a medical or religious waiver. The Columbia University School of Law graduate was barred from entering any court facilities, including her chambers, beginning the 27th of September at 5 p.m., when the state unified court system vaccine mandate went into effect for all staffers, including jurists. A business insider posted fake news about the president or former president, Donald Trump. They claim Melania Trump refused to meet Representative Steve Scalise at the White House after he was shot because she already said hello at the hospital. They got their story from a book, but didn't bother to check with the congressman himself. President Biden wants the IRS to watch individual checking accounts, as in yours. They want to monitor every penny that comes and goes, even through your ATM. Carol Liebu points out the policy is supposed to reveal tax dodging by the wealthy, but banks are already required to report transactions of $10,000 or more. It's hard to imagine how dropping the threshold all the way down to $600 is going to ensnare the rich. Instead, it will just allow vast data collection on everyone. And the IRS hasn't shown it can be trusted. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. And in the second hour, a conversation with Dr. Greg Tin Elsoff, author of For Shame, Rediscovering the Virtues of a Maligned Emotion. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next segment, we'll hear from uh, Greg Ten Elsoff. He is a Ph.D. and the author of For Shame, Rediscovering the Virtues of a Maligned Emotion. His book is published by Zondervan. He'll join us in the next couple of segments. Well, continuing to look at some of the news over the last several days, the White House is looking to fire those seeking religious exemptions from the vaccine mandate. Jazz Shaw notes that the rules are what we say they are has been replaced with the rules are what we say they are today. Things are changing 
on a daily basis. Well, the president and Senate Democrats have floated changing the filibuster rule to raise the debt ceiling. Lawmakers propose to change the Senate rules specifically that the filibuster, a 60 vote threshold needed to cut debate on a piece of legislation, doesn't apply to the debt ceiling. They have other exemptions as well. Well, Andrew, uh, well, not not going to bother with that one. But in a banned book week, libraries see parents as the enemy. Dr. Albert Moeller points out the American Library Association, the American Booksellers Association. So many different groups have come together to say, look, there are efforts to try to censure what Americans read. There are people, evil agents who are trying to prevent children and teenagers from reading certain books. Those uh, evil agents are otherwise known, by the way, as parents. Later, there are books no parents, uh, parent listening to the program today would possibly want their children or teenagers to read, much less to be assigned. And you're not wrong to have those concerns. You're absolutely right. But as you'll learn, as the list of books that uh, they claim have been banned, it turns out to not a single one of them has actually been banned. Some of them have been complained about. There have been challenges to them in curriculum and in public libraries. So it's something of a... An overstatement. Republicans um, jumped to the lead in a generic congressional poll in 2018. By the time the election rolled around, Democrats led by an average of 7.3 points on the generic poll. In Republican wave election in 2014, the GOP led by an average of 2.4 percent percentage points in the final polling. Today's Quinnipiac poll has Republicans up three. Clearly, it looks a lot more like 2014 than 2018. Well, on this day in history, 1809, Meriwether Lewis, half of the famed Lewis and Clark expedition crew that blazed the trail through the U.S. West, is found dead in a Tennessee inn, an apparent suicide just over three years after completing the journey that made him famous. 1908, the San Francisco Board of Education orders the city's Asian students segregated on a purely Oriental school. President Theodore Roosevelt would later request that the order be rescinded. uh, 1910, Theodore Roosevelt becomes the first former U.S. president to fly in an airplane during a visit to St. Louis. And finally, 1958, the Lunar Probe Pioneer 1 launches but fails to go as far out as planned. It falls back toward Earth, burning up in the atmosphere. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, Dr. Greg Ten Elsoff for Shame. We'll be back. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.